Well, Gatway, here's a little known fact. Los Angeles was once thought of as the bank robbery capital of the United States. Wow. Talk about a claim to fame. Yeah. <laughs> right? Jenna, do you think it's because there was so much crime in L.A. back in the day? It had to have been. And at the height of it, in 1992, the L.A. Times reported that more than two dozen banks were robbed in a single day. Wow. I'm not saying people should go rob banks, but I am super into all the great robber names. There's like the Penguin, Snappy, Butterfingers. I wonder if he is called Butterfingers because he would just drop all the money as he ran out. (laughs) There was Wally Walrus and the Pershing Square Bandit and the Charlie's Angels. I'm kind of into Wally Walrus, the WW thing. (laughs) Like, I feel kindred. And on September 17th, 1991, L.A. police officers arrested the Manila Envelope Bandit. Police had linked Robert Will Weiner to 28 bank robberies across L.A. County. He dressed up in a suit, you know, and went to the banks with a manila envelope. And I don't know what was on those letters, but he slid him a letter and the manila envelope, and they would slide it back to him full of money. That's Joey Weiner. He's the son of the manila envelope bandit. He would come home with a bag full of green or like purple money because there's always the bomb. The stack, as soon as you leave the bank, there would be like a bomb inside of it and would go off and make all the money a certain color so you couldn't spend it. So instead of acting like a kid, you know, playing sports, video games, loafing around, 10-year-old Joey Weinert was in a bathtub with piles of dyed money. You can't get that paint out, but you can dye the money a darker color with strong coffee. So at 10 years old, I was sitting in a bathtub with a bunch of strong pots of coffee poured into the bathtub and a bunch of purple money. And I was rubbing money to try to get it to be like a brownish, greenish color again. From Wondery, I'm Jenna Brister. And I'm Wagatwe Wanjuki. And this is I Survivor. On our show, we talk about the attacks, the assaults, the manipulation, the fear, and the triumphs. About the people who fought back, who won, and who live each day rising above that experience. People like Joey Weiner, who turned his life around despite parents who were in and out of prison his whole life. But first, we want to talk about homeless women. Government figures show the number of homeless women has increased in the past several years by more than 50%. It is such a vulnerable population. So it was really a no-brainer for us to talk about this on the show. So we took a trip to Skid Row in downtown L.A. to speak with a few women who recently lost their homes. Skid Row has the highest concentration of homeless people in the U.S. And we're going to talk to an expert about why more women are becoming homeless than in years past. Let's start with Deidre Wilson. She became homeless last September when she moved to California from Texas. We spoke to her at the Midnight Mission, a nonprofit organization and shelter on Skid Row that serves three meals a day and helps homeless men and women get jobs and permanent housing. My name is Deirdre Denise Wilson. I'm 54. I just made 54 May 26. And I'm born and raised here in Los Angeles, California. I was staying in Texas for like seven years. I was working at a nursing home. And on my last paycheck, my son had came to visit me in Dallas. He didn't like it. So on my last paycheck, I decided to bring me and him out here. He said, Mom, let's get out of here because it's really boring. I said, (laughs) I know, it's time to go. It's time to bounce and get back to the hood, you know. I kind of knew I was going to be homeless because I have family, but, you know, family want to have their own space. I have five brothers and two sisters. But um, I'm a nurse aide and a preschool teacher and a sign language interpreter. So I have a lot of skills. But Deidre says she's not able to work right now. 
because she has spinal stenosis of the lumbar. That's a condition that restricts your ability to walk. So I was standing in Orange County, think it would be the sister shelter to this one. And then I came here, I got transferred here, and they helped me as much as possible, and I love it here, I'm happy. I'm going to be moving into my own place soon. So taking back to the beginning, when you arrived back in L.A. from Dallas with your son. It was kind of kind of rough. I had to spend a lot of my money in a, in a hotel and trying to take care of myself. And I helped my son along the way a little bit, and I had to tell him, you know, I can help you a little bit. I need you to help yourself right now. And he did, and I moved on, and I went to the shelter in Orange County. Not knowing where you're going to lay your head and what are you going to eat, not knowing if I was going to have to sleep outside on a cold sidewalk and eat wherever I can eat and spend my last little bit of money, seeing people cold, dirty, children out there not knowing where they're going to sleep. You know, it's hard seeing people out there on the sidewalk. If I'm out visiting family and coming home, not knowing if something's going to happen or if you're going to get beat or raped, because, you know, you're a target when you're homeless. You're a target because they know you don't have a place to stay. Where are you going to run? Who are you going to run to? Who are you going to tell? You know, even though the police are around, who are you going to tell if they're not around? Walking down the street um, with your purse, have to hurry up and try to catch a bus, and sometimes they don't stop for you. Sometimes bus drivers look at you funny when you get on the bus, like move to the back of the bus, or, you know, no, you can't sit up here. You know, the people look at you strange. That's, you know, that's a bad experience for a lot of people, especially living here. Deidre says music helps her escape from the craziness of Skid Row. She's deaf in one ear, but Deidre cranks up the gospel in her good ear. I like B.B. and C.C. whining, and my favorite um, R&B and gospel would be Patti LaBelle and Luther Vandross. And it puts me to sleep. If I had to put my earphone on my good ear, I go to sleep. Just trying to make it day to day. And, you know, seeing a fight and everything outside and, you know, the yelling and screaming sometime at nighttime. You never know. You never know what you're going to find the next day or hear the next day of a dead body somewhere. And that happens a lot down here. It's there and having to live it, you know, and see it, walk by it. You never know if it's going to be a, a yellow tape outside. You never know if it's going to be a child, an older woman or a man or a young boy. You never know. Because they all walk around down here. Young children, young babies in their strollers with their mamas. You see that all the time. That baby don't know. You know, that's the life it is living here. It's a life. And as I was growing up, my mother never brought me down here. I never knew what it was like until I moved down here. I never been down here until I moved here. I stayed on the other side of town. A whole different world. Living here on Skid Row is a whole different world. Now let's hear from Jasmine Brown. She's also staying at the women's shelter at the Midnight Mission. She became homeless more than a year ago because her mother couldn't afford the rent in their Apple Valley home. Uh, My name is Jasmine Brown, and I'm 20 years old, and I'm from Long Beach, California. I was staying in a transitional home, and then I had to leave there because my time was up, so I ended up going to college because I graduated high school. So I was like, I want to go to college. And then I ended up going to college. And then in between there, I had to leave the transitional home. So I was homeless. I was staying in a motel. I had a boyfriend, so he was working, and he helped me pay the bills there. 
and I was still going to college and then ended up getting to the point where he lost his job and we had to, you know, get on our feet. So we came down here because we were homeless and I had to drop out of college, which is something I didn't want to do. I was introduced to the Midnight Mission by a client here. He's still here, too. Can you explain a little bit more about the transitional housing and about what forced you to to leave? And is it something that's timed? Yeah, timed. It's a year program. And um, I was staying with my mother there because she was homeless as well. So, And our time was up, so we had to leave. We had to find somewhere to go. Did you leave with your mother? I did, and then I ended up going my separate way because, you know, she had my little brother to take care of, and I feel like I'm old enough to do it on my own, so that's what I did. What did you study when you were in college? I was going for history, but I'm changing it. I want to do forensics, something in the forensics. Yeah? Yeah. Forensics? <laughs> yeah. So you're, I want to change it. Science? I'm always changing, yeah. Can you tell us more specifically a little bit about how you came to here at Midnight Mission? You talked about somebody introduced you. Yes. How did you meet them? We were wandering around the streets in downtown L.A. with our luggage, and we were lost. We were like, where are we going to go? And this guy, which is a client here, he was like, are you guys lost? And I'm like, yeah, we're homeless. He was like, there's this program at the Midnight Mission. Have you heard of it? I'm like, no. He was like, let's go to the police department. And that's where we got the referral. And then we came here and they had beds for us. We were on safe sleep. If you're new and you need a bed and they don't have any beds available, they have you sleep in the front in the lobby. You go to bed at nine, yeah, and you do that until they actually get you a bed in the dorm. I mean, it was a roof over our head, so. What's life been like since moving here? What have you been doing? What's what's an average day? It's been good. Um, I've been working on my housing and working. I have the mentality, you have to do what you have to do. You can't just keep, you know, thinking about what's going on. You have to keep pushing forward, so that's what I did. I'm still having a good life. I'm not going to let this homelessness, you know, get me down, you know. Before I was homeless, you see people on the streets and you don't really understand their story until you become one of the victims. Put yourself in their shoes. Before we hear our next story, let's pause and let the stories we just heard from Deidre and Jasmine marinate in our minds. Deidre and Jasmine painted a very real and vivid picture of what it's like to live on the streets of Los Angeles. The fear of being assaulted not knowing we're going to sleep at night, even seeing dead bodies, everything tells you that you're on the edge of society. Or the bus not picking you up because you look homeless. It's a little wild, but there are some people who do get out. Jenna, remember that guy we heard from at the beginning of the show? The son of the Manila Envelope Bandit? Yes, Joey. He's the one who introduced us to Deidre and Jasmine. Well, now it's time to hear the rest of his story. We met Joey Weinert at the Midnight Mission, too. Each year, thousands of volunteers come to the Midnight Mission to offer help. They make food, serve meals, and teach classes and life skills to the homeless. Joey Weiner manages the volunteers. He's 38 years old, and, as you heard at the top of the show, Joey's life was a wild ride before he landed here. We asked Joey to share his story, beginning with his childhood. My parents, they were uh, good people. Uh, They were partiers. They met. They were both drug addicts, and they met and ended up having me and then tried to have the normal life. My dad worked for the studios. He was in the union. My mom worked as a checker in a grocery store and again, union, you know, and it didn't take very long for their addiction to kind of set back in. And so from the earliest memory I have, it was always like moving from one place to another. I never remember seeing them actually using drugs like uh, smoking or sticking a needle in their arm in front of me. But I mean, you know, even from an early age, I knew that there was something going on. 
like my friends, you know, their parents didn't live like that. You know, they ate dinner at seven o'clock every night with their parents and you know, their parents weren't like nodding off at the dinner table, you know, and my parents were, you know, if we did have dinner, you know, at all, my dad, he spent more time in prison than he did out most of his life and definitely most of my life. Uh, when I was about 10 years old, he just got out of another prison stint and he saw the way me and my mom were living. We weren't living in the best situation, living in San Fernando Valley and like basically an SRO which single residence occupancy type situation. I think it was an old motel that was converted into single living. My dad got out of prison and saw the way me and my mom were living and wasn't going to have it. And just like any self-respecting drug addict, alcoholic, he decided to do something about it. And instead of doing something like that would take more of a, like a long-term effect, like get a job, and pay bills. You know, he uh, ended up robbing a bank. I don't know where he got the idea, but he robbed a bank. You heard Joey right. He says to put food on the table, his dad robbed a bank. He got away with it. And so then eventually robbed another one and another one and another one. He ended up getting arrested. He was convicted of robbing 28 banks in the San Fernando Valley in 1990. He was dubbed the Manila Envelope Bandit because he went in with a Manila Envelope and and, uh, he was never armed. So he ended up getting 15 years in federal prison. My mom got locked up as well during that time. We were moving around. We were with him the whole time when he was doing the bank robbery. So we were moving around from friends' houses to motels, hotels, to holiday inns. Joey's dad would enter the bank in a nice suit and hand the teller a note, along with a manila envelope. He was unarmed, but the teller would still stuff the envelope with bills. Joey remembers the stolen cash would be stained with ink, a tactic used to foil bank robbers. We threw away thousands of dollars because it was just too close to the bomb and was too purple. As the robberies continued, Joey's family kept it moving, never staying in one place for too long. And I remember waking up in the, uh, in the morning and my mom was handcuffed to a chair. There was a bunch of plainclothes officers standing around us with gun belts and badges, but they were wearing like polo shirts, specifically looking for my father. My dad was already downstairs in one of the cars. My mom got arrested for accomplice. My dad took the rap said she had nothing to do with it even though they knew it was complete bullshit they let it go but she had warrants so she ended up having to do a little bit of time for the warrants i went to my grandparents house and that's kind of where my alcoholism started because my grandparents were high functioning alcoholics they put me in school i would come home with my friends you know and we would uh, raid their little mini bar and i was like 10, 11, 12 years old during this time, right? Around that period of time, my grandparents smoked weed, you know, they're old school. So they would roll joints and I found a big ashtray full of joints underneath their couch. And my whole thing was, and I associate my alcoholism with this today still, is that it wasn't the alcohol or the drugs that I was like drawn to. It was fitting in. It was like feeling a part of. And when I was the one that was like hosting the party, I was the guy. I was like, my friends are having a good time. They know me now because I'm capable of giving them that good time. And that's what I was addicted to. And that's what I, again, I stayed addicted to for many, many years to come. Well, Gatway, want to know one of my biggest pet peeves? It's when tall people stand in front of you, isn't it? At concerts, yes, absolutely. (laughs) But also that feeling of when your socks slide down your ankles and bunch up in your shoe while you walk. Oh my gosh, yes. I've literally avoided wearing shoes that need socks for years because of that. (sighs) 
you get it. But thanks to our BFFs at Bombas, that is no longer a major concern of mine. The team at Bombas put two years of research into developing the most comfortable socks out there. I'm actually wearing a pair right now, oddly enough. No more bunching up or weird lumps on the toes. These are hands down the best socks I've ever worn. I love them so much. They're so comfortable. Their socks are made out of this like really soft, seamless cotton, and there's cushioned footbeds and the honeycomb arch support, which is really good for someone like me because I have flat feet. And my favorite part is that for every pair purchase, Bombas will donate a pair to someone in need. <gasps> That's putting a foot forward for humankind. Plus, I feel good every time I wear my comfy no-show socks, knowing that I help someone out. Me too. I've been wearing Bombas ankle socks lately, and I'm obsessed. I've even taken them to the beach, even though people are judging me for it. But, you know. The sand gets hot. YOLO. Yeah. <laughs> and you can save 20% by visiting bombas.com slash survivor and entering survivor at checkout. That's a code. Survivor. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash survivor. Promo code survivor. Usually the most laborious part of the morning shower is shaving my legs. What about you? I hate doing it myself. So that's why I was really happy to try out Harry's. Harry's Razors sent us each a gift box of their products. They got razors. They got shave cream. They got body wash, bar soap, the works. And what was so nice is that all of it was so nice on the skin. I had a great shave. I'm honestly never going back. What I love about Harry's, too, is that you don't have to worry about the pink tax. So no matter what your gender, the razors are super affordable. Skin is skin. Love is love. That's what's nice about these is that they can work for men and women. You know, the essential oils, the minerals that they use are really neutral, but smell really fresh and really nice. And so you're not going to walk out of there smelling like gardenia if you don't want to. Yeah, I'm a really big fan of how it smells on me after I get out of the shower. Yeah, and the razors are so great. Plus, Harry's is so sure that you'll love your shave that they have a guaranteed full refund within 30 days if you do not. And they really do stand behind the quality of their blades. Yeah, try Harry's for only $13 with their trial offer. You get a weighted ergonomic handle with a five-blade razor, travel blade cover, and their shave gel, which I love. Everything you need for a close, comfortable shave. That is such a deal. 13 bucks. You really got nothing to lose. So go redeem your trial set at harrys.com slash survivor. That's harrys.com slash survivor. Joey Weinert said his drug and alcohol addiction came from him just wanting to fit in. All of this was happening while Joey was living with his grandparents. There was a lot of drugs and alcohol that played their part, but it was always because I just wanted to fit in. After his mom got out of prison, she entered a 12-step program to get sober. Joey ended up moving back in with his mom. It's crazy because while my mom was, like, entering recovery, I was starting to kind of wind down that rabbit hole. I didn't take a drink and go, ah, you know, there I have arrived. That's not what happened. As a matter of fact, when I smoked weed and drank early on in my youth, it was gross. It would make me feel sick. But what I did like was the attention. And then eventually, slowly but surely, like, I did learn how to use those things a little bit better to enjoy them and party with them. The beer and the the couple sips of alcohol turned into like a real serious alcohol dependency. And then so barely got out of high school, had no ambition to go into like college or any higher education. So I ended up partying for a little while and then joined the military. By that point, I was addicted. You know, I needed to drink. I would wake up in the morning with shakes. Joey left the military when he was 25 years old, right around the time his dad got out of prison. 
shortly after he got out, he died from a heroin overdose. And right at the same time, I was kicked out of the military. And that broke my heart because really I found another place where I felt like I fit in because of my alcoholism, because of my, you know, um, not knowing how to cope with life on life's terms without pouring alcohol and everything. I burned that down. And when I got kicked out and my dad died, it was like, it's on, you know, I had like the green light. Meaning Joey burned every relationship bridge he had and he partied hard. I worked. It was in construction. I eventually joined the union. You know, it wasn't about not having a career or or direction. In the union, sometimes I would work prevailing wages jobs and I would get prevailing wages back then, back in like, like 2008, 2009, it was like $52 an hour. That's pretty good. That's really good. Yeah, Yeah, that's really good. Despite a promising career, Joey says he felt so alone. He got attention the only way he knew how. I was the guy that you came to to get your drugs. And of course, I was addicted. When I was out there, when I was doing what I was doing, I was a hope to die drug addict alcoholic. You know, I wished death upon me. I mean, I was too much of a wuss to kill myself or put a razor to my arm or jump off a cliff or anything. Just don't let me wake up tomorrow. You know, and I was fine not waking up tomorrow. Um, I ended up not really getting trouble too much with the law. I very well should have, you know, I've traveled from County to County with a bunch of drugs in my dashboard of my truck. And I think I was just level headed enough to make it across without doing anything stupid, but somehow I never got caught. But what I did get in trouble with the law uh, was uh, DUIs. So, you know, when I was out partying, uh, you know, I three sheets to the wind and not, you know, really paying attention to what I was doing. I would go to the bar, the club, whatever, the party, and then drive home. And that's where my problems kind of set in. So uh, I ended up getting four DUIs in the span of nine years, that nine years from like about 25 to 33. The first and second DUIs meant fines and a few nights in jail. Joey had to enroll in a program to get sober for the third DUI. When he was slapped with a fourth one, Joey had to do six and a half months in prison. During that time, I had what we call in recovery a moment of clarity. I was uh, doing my prison time in, in, at Men's Central Jail and County Jail, somewhere that I was familiar with because I'd been in and out of that place a half dozen times before for little stupid stuff. This time I had a little extended stay, six and a half months. It's a drop in the bucket you know, compared to a lot of people I know I've done years, you know, my dad, 15 years, come on. But six and a half months, it was enough. It was enough for me to really have uh, that moment of clarity. And I realized that I needed to go a different direction. What really hit me was not the fear of death, but the fear of continuing to live that miserable existence. And that scared me enough to want to do something about it. And again, I didn't know that this was the answer. I didn't know if this was the answer, but I knew what the alternative was. And that's what kept me going. I knew when I got out, it was April 14th, 2014. I knew I can either go back the direction I was going in, or I can try this new direction that I haven't really honestly gave a try. And this time I, I, you know, I was desperate enough and willing to surrender and had a little bit of willingness, you know, enough to be able to see that moment of grace that was there in front of me. And I took it. When he got out, Joey went to the midnight mission for help. I did everything that they told me to do. You know, I met with a case manager and he sat me down. He looked like a cop. He was all cleaned up. I was like, this guy's going to jam his finger in my chest and tell me what I need to do to get my shit together. Like I've heard so many times before, but that's not what he did. He actually told me his story. He too was a sober member of a 12 step program. He was in the military and like he had built this life for himself and burn it down, build it up and burn it down. And I was like, I could, yeah, I could totally relate to him. And what he did for me is he gave me that feeling like I wasn't alone, you know, which had at that moment in time became 
blatantly obvious that I felt so alone. Let's chat about this. And what are you thinking at this point in the story we got away? You know, it's really interesting with Joey. It seems like a turning point is when he felt less alone. Because obviously growing up with a dad as a famous bank robber probably isn't something you can find a lot of support groups on, you know? Yeah. And but, being seen. When both your parents are in and out of prison, you do want that attention growing up. And so you're able to finally connect with people on what you're feeling. Especially when you're a kid and you're moving around all the time. And stability is just so important when you're growing up. Like, it's always important, right? But especially when you're a child. So I can only imagine, like, even if it felt normal for him, and I think we've noticed this with a lot of episodes where, you know, we've spoken with people as children where they said, you know, I just told myself it was okay, it was normal because they didn't have a choice. But what it shows that even if you think it's normal, your body and your brain knows it's not. Yes. And so, you know, things like addiction may happen and it might lead to homelessness. And being able to connect with other people on that is that feeling of, oh, I'm not alone. Oh, yeah. I'm not going through this by myself. There's other people who are experiencing the exact same thing. And it makes it more normal, right? Like it helps us move away from stigma and like blaming people who are homeless being like, well, you're just weak or, oh, it's a moral failing, right? Like we always really need to look at the whole person and their history and their present for us to really understand how to help people better, help survivors. Yeah. Back to Joey's story. He enrolled in a healthy living program at the Midnight Mission and worked at the shelter as a dorm porter. His responsibilities, like cleaning the bathrooms, were far from glamorous. I hit the ground running. I did everything I was supposed to do. All the guys that come and do the healthy living program here at the Midnight Mission get a work therapy position as part of their program. And then someone saw me, you know, my case manager and other people saw me doing the deal and offered me a position in the public affairs department as the assistant volunteer coordinator. And I was like, oh, the guy that walks the volunteers around, the tour guide job, right? Yeah. And I was like, yeah. I was like, okay, cool. I was like, yeah, they wear a tie. I was never owned a tie, never wore a tie in my life. I was like, I can do that as long as you guys hook me up with some ties, you know, and, yeah. <laughs> and uh, they did and they did. I did that job. And what that did for me, because I came in very self-centered and very selfish. And my case manager, that guy that helped me in the beginning, he taught me that we weren't going to knock down my walls. But what he was going to do was help me take them down brick by brick. And one of those things was my self-centeredness and selfishness. Working with volunteers really opened my eyes to that there is good in humanity. And not only did I see that there was good in humanity, I wanted to taste it. You know, I wanted to be a part of it. It was so attractive to me that it was something that I wanted for myself. And that kind of self-centered selfishness kind of slipped away. And then also the Midnight Mission, they gave me the direction to go to a 12-step meetings. And that was where I got my my real program. I got built my foundation here at the Midnight Mission, but I really got my recovery through the 12-step program and the 12-step philosophy. I got a sponsor. He had me work through those steps. He had me uncover, discover, and discard some things in my life. One of the, uh, the most important things that I learned in the 12-step philosophy was that it's about trusting something other than myself, you know, cleaning house and then being of service, you know, and that's what real, I really got the chance to be able to do, you know, make amends to the people that I wronged in my life. You know, I, I wasn't able to make amends to my father because he had passed away, but I did what we call a graveside amends. You know, I wrote a letter and then I, I, I read it out loud in a quiet place and I was able to make things right. And now I, I uh, have what we call a living amends where I continue to, to remind 
remind myself that my dad and my grandfather and my uncle, for that matter, would rather see me continue staying down this path. Um, and, you know, I've made things right with my mom. You know, me and my mom have a really good relationship now. She's sober. She works her program. I get to work mine. And we have this amazing relationship, mother and son relationship. I'm self-supporting through my own contributions, you know, and not my mom's anymore. You know, she helped me so much and cut me off when she needed to. They ended up hiring me in the public affairs department as the event coordinator. I did that for about a year. I decided to go back to school. I never went to college. I didn't want to go back into the union. I don't blame the union or construction on my alcoholism or anything, but uh, I felt that if I was rebranding myself, if I was starting over, that I shouldn't maybe go a different direction. And I decided to go to school and to go into the medical field. I had help with career development here at the Midnight Mission, applied at Santa Monica College in order to go uh, into the medical field as an RN, registered nurse. That job turned that here turned into a management position. Now I manage the volunteer department. But, you know, there's nothing saying that I can't walk out of here and go walk to the liquor store because I'm not in the right place in my head. Right. So I keep my program strong. You know, right now I'm safe because I'm in a room with you guys. And I think before I jam for a bottle of something, you guys might tackle. Well, hopefully you're tackling yeah. me down to the ground. <laughs> yes. um, but uh, I'm not going to do that. Uh, yeah, I'm giving you permission to. You know, I continue to go to my meetings, my 12 step meetings. I continue to work with a sponsor. I sponsor guys now and nothing has been more rewarding than being able to take another man through the steps. Nothing has been more rewarding than being able to help another man be able to like build this life for himself. Seeing the light come on in somebody else's eyes. It's an amazing thing that I get to be able to do and I would have missed it all. I don't know if this happens to you too, but while you're going throughout your day, you find these little intervals of time that you have available. And I know I'm like this and I think a lot of people are. I whip out my smartphone and just start scrolling social media absentmindedly. Yeah, I had a really bad habit of it. I've been trying to cut back because why do I want to put more information? That kind of makes me freak out more. <laughs> yes, I'm the exact same. Blinkist is the only app that takes key insights of the best nonfiction books and distills them down to their most impactful elements. Since I've started using Blinkist, I find that I'm able to do a lot more reading throughout the day and sample some nonfiction works that I wouldn't find otherwise. Yeah, Blinkist is really good if you want to knock a few things off of your to-read list in just 15 minutes because they have this really big library, anything from classics like Think and Grow Rich to my suggestion for today about awakening compassion at work. Yes. And when you first sign up for Blinkist, you can select all these different categories that you're interested in, and then they'll give you the top 10 or 15 Blinks, which is a 15-minute excerpt, if you will, that you could either read or listen to. So if you're driving or tidying up around the house, you can just listen to books and then see if, oh, this is really cool. I want to go check the whole book out or find more stuff by this author. That's really great. Yeah. You should try out uh, Roxane Gay's latest, Hunger. It's a really good memoir, super powerful and really compelling storytelling. She's awesome. I will totally check that out. And Blinkist is the only app that takes key insights of the best nonfiction books and distills them down to their most impactful elements. And they're made for mobile format means you can read or listen on your phone anywhere. For a limited time, you can get a free seven-day trial at Blinkist.com slash Survivor. That's Blinkist spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T dot com slash Survivor. Start your free seven-day trial today at Blinkist.com slash Survivor. Joey's story is incredible. Talk about a variety of survival stories. His dad was a bank robber. 
and his parents were in jail for most of his childhood. Then he managed to pull himself out of it. And now he's going to school to get trained to be a registered nurse. And then there were the women we heard from, Deidre and Jasmine. Neither could afford the price of housing in today's market, and they lost their housing. Economic homelessness. Deidre said she'd never been to Skid Row before she found herself living there. I'd been down there a handful of times, and always felt on edge. It's pretty dangerous. And as we mentioned, the number of homeless women like her is growing in L.A. We wanted to find out what is driving this, so we called an expert, Rena Palta. Rena is an investigative correspondent for the L.A. public radio station KPCC. She reports on issues related to homelessness and California's social safety net. Rena, can you please describe what Skid Row is like for people who have never been there? Sure. For somebody who's never been there, it's actually probably pretty shocking. Uh, it's the stretch of downtown L.A. that's been there for basically hundreds of years. It dates back to when uh, seasonal workers used to come in on the railway and need a cheap place to stay. But now it's the biggest concentration of homeless people in the entire country. So if you've ever been there, you've probably seen it. Uh, you can't really miss it. It's just sidewalks covered in tents, people living out of those tents, people conducting everything that you would do in a normal life out of those tents, sleeping, eating. There's people who cut hair on the sidewalks, people selling things on the sidewalks. It's kind of a rowdy place. And it's basically where a lot of homeless people in LA have ended up when they have no other options. It's actually shrinking a bit because it's being encroached on by some high-end developments. But Skid Row is pretty intractable and it's pretty much there to stay. And why are women more likely to be homeless than in years past? Recently, there's been such a spike in women who are ending up homeless. It's an interesting phenomenon. There's a lot of people becoming homeless now who used to be immune, for lack of a better word. If you look at the traditional demographics of the homeless population over the years, those are really starting to change. So the stereotype has always been a person suffering from severe mental illness, somebody struggling with substance abuse issues, really someone who's physically or mentally incapable of taking care of themselves. So that's the stereotype, but it's just not the case anymore. Now we're really seeing people who are out on the streets basically because they can't afford rent. And there might have been some other factor, a precipitating event, like an illness or somebody lost a job or they were evicted. But in the past, that person may have been able to bounce back and pull themselves out. Now they're less likely to do so. And that's really impacting women. This economic homelessness is why you're seeing this spike in women. Yeah, that makes sense with the rising cost of housing. You know, that's the one thing that and wages have not caught up. Um, Can you also explain what transitional housing is? That's something that Jasmine mentions. Why is it time limited? So transitional housing is kind of this old school way of addressing homelessness. It's meant to be temporary. It's a place where a homeless person can get off the streets for a while and kind of work on sorting out their life. So they get indoors and then they do all the things that they need to do to get ready for housing. So they might deal with their substance abuse issue. They might uh, find a job. They might work on issues like that while they're in this temporary housing. That's really a model that's gone out of fashion now, though. Increasingly, there's a move towards getting rid of these sort of time-limited transitional spaces for people and putting them directly instead into permanent housing, just so they're in a stable environment. Transitional housing by its nature is not permanent stability, it's temporary. The issue is 
permanent housing is obviously really expensive. There's not a lot of it out there. So a lot of people do end up using transitional housing still. And you've done a lot of reporting on shelters in your career, including in your piece Broke, which won a Golden Mike Award last year. That piece looks at why more California families are becoming homeless than ever before. And both Deidre and Jasmine do say good things about the Midnight Mission Shelter, but you've found in your reporting that that's not always the case. Right. We did an investigation into conditions in shelters in Los Angeles, and we found some pretty troubling things. Um, a lot of unsanitary conditions like rats, mold, bed bugs, broken, leaky plumbing, things like that. Uh, we also found some unsafe conditions like people who had managed to sneak knives into shelters. And there were also instances where homeless people had severe illnesses and they weren't checked on regularly. And some of those people ended up passing away in their beds in homeless shelters. Those issues were were pretty widespread. But that said, you know, there are a lot of good shelters out there. Uh, and certainly even the ones that are struggling are trying to do better. Yeah. And in your opinion, what separates a good shelter from a bad one? I mean, obviously, like you mentioned, security, sanitation. Is it just resources, access to things that can help someone get back on their feet? A lot of it is the services that are provided on site that can make a good homeless shelter. The architecture of a homeless shelter makes a big difference. Um, You know, how much private space people have to themselves, uh, whether staff can see what's going on in the shelter from where they sit and interact with clients easily or if they're tucked away. Um, There's also really simple things like, is it open 24-7 or do they kick people out during the day? Is there common space for people to sit and interact? Is there food that people can eat uh, whenever they need it. And you've discovered also that families are more likely to be homeless than in the past. And why is that? You know, you see a lot of families, especially with young children who are out on the streets now. And again, it just comes down to these incredible affordability issues that places like Los Angeles and really all of the West Coast are experiencing. The numbers show that as rents have gone way up in these places, the income of renters has actually gone down. So that's obviously an equation that doesn't quite add up to a lot of people being able to afford to live here. And then you see a lot of families who are doubled or tripled up with other families. So they're living in a three-bedroom apartment and there might be three families with like four kids crammed into that place. That's a precarious situation that can easily fall apart. People fight. People might not pay the rent on time. Those things can fall apart and then all of a sudden you're on the streets living out of your car um, and it's hard to get out of that situation. So one of the stories we heard from Jasmine, she Um, Became homeless during a really transitional time when she basically had to drop out of college in the very beginning. And I was wondering, have you noticed in your work, is there a time where people may seem extra vulnerable? Um, I know you touched upon it a little bit, but I'm also thinking in ways that maybe one may look out for their friend or someone they know or a student. Like what sort of signs can we just like, you know, keep a close eye on someone if they seem like they may be at risk? The homeless population is incredibly diverse, so it's hard to say completely, but you do see an incredible number of people who are young, who are college age becoming homeless. A lot of people may be coming out of families who can't afford to help them with things like rent and school supplies while they're in school, end up living out of their car. A lot of kids, you know, leaving the foster care system at that age will also end up homeless because they do not have resources and they don't have a network of people to fall back on. So that definitely early 20s, late teens is a very vulnerable time and you're seeing that population rise as well. Have you noticed any connections between gender-based violence, sexual assault, 
domestic violence and homelessness. So there is demographic information, at least in Los Angeles. They do a demographic survey uh, when they do the annual count of homeless people. And um, homeless women do report higher rates of particularly domestic violence. That can often be a cause of homelessness, domestic violence, just fleeing a bad situation. They have higher rates of sexual assault history than the average population. I'd say that's true of men as well. I used to cover crime. I've noticed that even more in the jails and prisons. Almost all the women you talk to who are in jail, for instance, are victims of sexual assault at some point in their lives. So it's a huge, huge issue. Um, But yeah, you definitely see that in the homeless population as well. Thank you. That that, that makes a lot of sense. It's heartbreaking to hear about um, also people who are incarcerated. But I think it's just like a reflection, as with homelessness, as well as our failure as a society to really take care of its people. Yeah. And my next question doesn't have easy answers, given all the complex factors that lead to poverty and homelessness. But in your experience, what can the average citizen do to try to change the tide? Yeah, so this is this can seem really overwhelming for people, particularly in Los Angeles, where we've just seen an explosion in homelessness. And it is a very complex problem. As you said, it's rooted in things like wealth disparity, housing shortages, really big societal issues. But that said, there are things that you can do um, from volunteering with a homeless service organization to even, you know, helping out a struggling neighbor. Those things make a huge difference in people's lives. I think there's also things that we who live indoors can do that are little as much as you know acknowledging homeless people when you see them on the street you know a smile saying good morning can make somebody who's kind of feels like they're cast aside by society a little more welcome in the neighborhood um, also things like you know maybe don't pick up the phone and call the police when you see a homeless person on your block And if a developer comes in and wants to build a homeless housing project or something to get low-income people off the streets, hear them out. Give it a try, because that's a huge barrier right now to addressing homelessness, is just people don't want affordable housing in their neighborhoods. Yeah, which is so ridiculous. That is such a practical solution (laughs) to, to provide a home. There are organizations, too, in everyone's neighborhoods. Maybe it is like identifying which ones take things besides money. Like if someone's like, oh, I don't have any extra money lying around, but there's, you know, workwear, there's bedding, there's other supplies that these shelters could need. How can the average citizen, I guess, find and identify one of those shelters that you say is doing a good job? Yeah, it probably depends on what community you're in. You could just you know, ask to take a tour of the shelter and talk to some of the clients and see what they're experiencing. I would say even shelters that are not doing as good of a job are trying. So it's not a bad thing to add, you know, your volunteer hours to help a struggling shelter either. In fact, some of the shelters that are struggling are the ones that lack resources and are in the poorer neighborhoods. So part of bringing them up to quality standards really is getting more people involved, giving their hours to those shelters. So anything you can do will help. It's kind of a fallacy to think this is something that government will solve all by itself. Um, And the more you can do, the better. Mm -hmm. And not just do it around the holidays. I know that's such a time on, I think, Thanksgiving, you know, there's an influx of people who want to work at soup kitchens and or Christmas give toys when it's like, okay, well, those could all be spread out across the year and used for 
much more. Exactly. I think a lot of people probably don't realize this, but if their children are in public schools, your kids are probably going to school with kids who are homeless. So there's a lot you can do in your own school, too. There's a homeless liaison in every single public school in the entire country by law, and that person could direct you to ways you could help in your school with homeless kids as well. I'm so thankful for the people who spoke with us and can't be easy to talk about being homeless and trying to get out of that. And and, and it made me really think about what we can do, hopefully, to try and and reduce this. I'm really glad we got to speak with Rena. And blast with the stereotypes. Yeah, there's not just one profile of someone who ends up living on the streets. It's very complex. It can happen to anyone. It yeah. literally can. And mm-hmm. I think that's when, when, when people can wrap their heads around that. Hopefully we can make progress and really addressing this issue because we're in the United States. Like we can afford to home every single person. You know, like I, I have family in Kenya, right? Like I know what it looks like where a country wouldn't technically be able to afford it. So like that's why I get more mad at the U.S. I'm like we could afford to house everyone. Yeah, there's a lot of empty buildings out there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's it for this show. Thanks to The Midnight Mission, Deidre Wilson, Jasmine Brown, Joey Weinert, and Rena Palta. You can find out more about The Midnight Mission on their website, midnightmission.org. Thank you for listening. If you're hearing this on a smartphone, scroll down or tap the cover art of this podcast. You'll find the episode notes, including some details you may have missed. You'll also find some offers from our sponsors, like Bombas. I'm actually wearing a pair of their socks right now. Get 20% off your new Bombas socks by visiting bombas.com using code SURVIVOR at checkout. If you like what we're doing, we'd love it if you can leave us a five-star rating and a review. We've been telling you a little bit about us during the show, and now we want to know a little bit about you. You can go take a short survey at wondery.com survey. That's wondery.com survey. iSurvivor is hosted by me, Jenna Brister, and Magatwe Wenjuki. Sound design by Bay Area Sound. iSurvivor is produced by Leah Sutherland and Paula Mardo. The executive producer is Abby Fentress Swanson. Executive producers Marshall Louis and Hernan Lopez for Wondery. FedEx has been used to mail everything from urgent contracts to a three and a half year old panda named Bao Bao. But when overnight shipping first came along, no one knew if customers would really pay more for the service. And for a while, they didn't. In fact, at one point, FedEx was in such dire straits that founder Fred Smith went to Las Vegas to gamble the company's future at the blackjack table. I'm David Brown, the host of Wondery Show Business Wars, and we go deep into some of the biggest corporate rivalries of all time. In our latest series, we unbox the shipping wars as upstart FedEx takes on the behemoth UPS. Listen to FedEx versus UPS on Business Wars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the Wondery app.